0: Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi. To learn more about our church, our beliefs, and our pastor, please visit fpcgulfport.org. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle mentioned a war that's being waged against the souls of believers. What kind of war was Peter talking about? And how can we protect ourselves? That will be the focus of today's study. Have you ever heard the song The Devil Went Down to Georgia? Who wrote it? I don't know? I had the toughest time this morning. I knew it was Charlie Daniels, but I had the toughest time coming up with it. So Charlie Daniels wrote the song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. And if you've heard this song, you know the basic plot line. You have this guy. His name is Johnny. He plays the fiddle, and he plays it hot. And he's so good that he challenges the devil to a contest, to a battle, to see who the best fiddle player is. And, of course, Johnny wins. It wouldn't be a catchy song if he didn't. He defeats the devil. The devil lays the golden fiddle down on his feet. And Johnny taunts him, and he says... If you ever want to try again, come on back because I'm the best there's ever been. The Apostle Peter used to be a lot like Johnny. The Apostle Peter used to have that sort of confidence, that sort of bravado. Think about some of the narratives of him when he was a younger guy. The Apostle Peter thought he was the man. He was a capable individual. As everyone else stands in the boat, what does Peter do? He says, I'm heading on out. And he attempts to walk across the waves to Christ. Peter, when everyone else's hands were at their side, when Jesus was being captured there in the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone else's hands at their side, what does Peter do? He takes his sword out and he lops off an ear. Peter, when the others went to the tomb, they came up to the tomb and they went to the edge and stopped there and looked in, what did Peter do? He rushed on in. This is the sort of guy that Peter was. Peter even told Jesus, he says, you know, Jesus, even if every other man, woman, and child on this globe denies you, I won't. I've got your back. I'm strong enough to face whatever might come against me. Peter thought that he could stand up against this world challenges. Much like Johnny, he thought he could take down whatever opposition might come his way. With that said, do you remember, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter that really kind of cooled his jets? Do you know what Jesus said to Peter that humbled him and helped Peter understand that in reality, he was not some sort of commando sheep that could just march on in and take on the devil, but rather he was very vulnerable and very weak. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said this. He said, Simon, Simon, the devil desires to have you in order that he might sift you like wheat. Let me ask you, what opposition does wheat Against the sifter. Peter thought he was strong, and Jesus had to stop and remind him, said, No, you got this all wrong. Apart from the grace that is protecting you, apart from that which is sustaining you, apart from the army of angels that surround you, the devil could sift you like wheat. Like it means nothing to him. The only thing keeping Peter alive, keeping Peter standing, was God's protection and not Peter's own strength. As a side note, how often do we rely on our own strength? Even in ministry, you can do this. Even in ministry, you can get this tendency to think, I'm strong, I mean, I can do this. wrong oh, it doesn't work that way. I've been humbled many times. You do not have the ability to stand against that which will come against your door, apart from the grace given by God to do so. With that said, when he was young, Peter didn't get that. When Peter was a young apostle, when Peter was a young minister, when Peter was a young man, he didn't realize his weakness. He didn't understand that which would one day face him. But in time, in time he did. The years as they go by will do that to you. The years as they go by will lay scar tissue upon your back. And as you look at the scars that have affected you, as you get a little bit older, maybe some maturity, you start to be humbled by that which you faced. And you understand that maybe, maybe you're not as strong as you thought you were. And so when Peter became an older, more mature saint, especially after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when Peter grew older, his letters, like what we're reading today in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, they're seasoned by maturity. And he attempts to warn those who think they're strong lest they fall. He attempts to warn them that the spiritual warfare that is being waged against their souls, something they might not even think is real. He says, yes, it's real, and you don't have the power to stand against it. And with regards to the enemy, with regards to the spiritual enemy that is at the door of Christ's children, Peter had a warning. He said this, he said, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking those that he may devour. That's not something that young Peter would have written. But in time, he began to understand the nature of the battlefield. And in time, he began to understand how vulnerable sheep are. Let's see, warn them, and he warns us. All right, let's consider that warning further as we return to verse 11 of today's text. Verse 11, beloved, beloved, I beg you, which is an interesting phrase. I'm begging you, I plead you. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. All right. Before we talk about the war itself, before we talk about the war against the soul, let's consider the first part there of verse 11, which referred to Christians in the dispersion, which referred to you and I as what? As sojourners and pilgrims. Let's start our time with those words. Now, when you think of a pilgrim or a sojourner, what comes to mind? Well, at a minimum, what should come to mind is someone who's going from one place to another. You're not a sojourner. If there is no sojourn, you're not a traveler if there's no travel. You're not a pilgrim if you're not going from one location onto another location. And so here, he refers to Christians, he refers to believers centuries ago, and he refers to us as pilgrims, as sojourners. Now, if someone never goes anywhere or makes any progress at all in their life who never travels from A to B, would we call them a sojourner? Well, probably not. We'd call them a settler. Being a pilgrim isn't something you can just call yourself as if it's legitimate. What makes you a pilgrim is the physical, literal way in which you travel from one place to another. What makes one a pilgrim is the pilgrimage. Understand that? What makes you a pilgrim is not saying, I'm a pilgrim. It's the pilgrimage. It's the fact that there's evidences to support your claim. It's similar in Christianity. It's similar in our faith. So how did Peter use this word to apply to us as Christians? Well, what he was conveying to his original audience and us as well, number one, number one with a bullet is this, that this world, this world, whether it's Gulfport or Bluxy or Rome or Corinth or wherever, this world is not our home. That's the number one takeaway. This world is not our home. We are pilgrims here. We are sojourners here. Other translations use the phrase aliens and strangers. If someone calls you an alien and a stranger, what that implies to you is that you are not a local resident. You must be a resident of some other location. And that's what Peter says to this audience. So number one, he's saying this world is not our home. And number two, because it's not our home, we should stand out in the midst of it. You understand that? Was in Egypt a couple months ago, as you know. Well, guess what? I stand out there. I stand out for a lot of different reasons. They had no trouble discerning that I was not local for a myriad of different reasons. And this is true in a lot of different places that you travel. Well, it's also supposed to be true of us as Christians. If this world is not our home, then why do we look so much like the world? Peter says, if that's you, reader in the first century, or if that's you in Gulfport, Mississippi, all these years later, then think things through. Why are you blending in to the degree that you are? He's writing to them and saying this world is not our home, and because it's not our home, we shouldn't look like those who dwell here. We should have behaviors and appetites and affections that differ from the place, the temporary place in which we are now present. We should stand out. So was this new to the first century Christians? Is it new to you? Well, probably not. If the idea of being set apart is new to you, you've never done a word study on the word holy. That's the whole principle. The word holy doesn't mean righteous. Righteous means righteous. The word holy means set apart. It means set apart. From what? Well, for starters, from a fallen world. From the carnality that's around us and the fleshly lust, which is what we see in the texts that are within. But that said, Christians in the first century and the Christians in our century can forget this somewhat conveniently. Now, why would anyone forget that they're an alien and a stranger? Uh, among other reasons, I think it's because it's easier to blend. It's just easier to hunker down. I mean, if there's a battle waging all around you, what's the easiest thing to do? Play dead. Just hunker down into a little hole and just hope the battle goes by. It's simpler. It's easier to find some corner of the war zone which just quiet, and you can just live out your days there. It's much harder to pick up your sword and your satchel and go marching into the battle. So one of the reasons that we tend to blend in is, again, simplicity, the desire to live out our lives without drawing much persecution, without drawing attention that we don't want. And as we do so, the light bulb of Christian witness dims a little bit in the world around us, and it doesn't stop the battle. Well, that said, that's one of the reasons that we do this. And I wouldn't be doing us as individuals any favors if I didn't ask you, is this true of you and I? Are we living and acting as sojourners and pilgrims and aliens and strangers, or are we settling and blending and the like? Only you can really answer that for yourself. But if the answer is I'm making myself far more like the world in order not to attract a lot of attention, if that's really where you're at, my encouragement would be, look at this text. That's not who you're supposed to be. That's not what you're called to do. We're called to strive for this heavenly finish line. And when we reach there, by God Almighty's grace, we want to reach there as holy as we can. Not because we punch the ticket to get in, but just because it glorifies God all the more if we run our race well. And one of the ways to run our race well is to be holy in the midst of a darkened society and see that during our age and across the scope of our family's life, And across the scope of our ministry, that the light of Christian witness around us has gone up, not dimmed. And some of that is upon us in terms of what we do this very week conversations that we should have but haven't had historically, things we should do but haven't been doing, appetites and attitudes we should get rid of that we've clung to. These are sort of the decisions that we have to make. It's not a matter of just encountering the text and going, boy, I see what Peter was saying to those people who lived centuries ago in a place far, far away, a long time ago. It's words meant to be tattooed upon our own hearts as well. Are we sojourners? And if not, then we need to take action. All right, let's consider the second half of verse 11 now. I'm going to read the whole verse 11, but let's move on and talk about what the second half says. So verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know, whenever I've looked at old military photos or old paintings from battles across the various centuries, I've noticed this. I've noticed that competing nations, competing factions, you can usually tell them apart. And the way that you can tell them apart is because usually, historically, across the centuries, one side wears a different uniform than the other side. For example, in the Revolutionary War, the British forces were known as what? The red coats. Why are they called the red coats? Well, it's in the name. They were called the red coats because that's what they wore. Now, what's the advantage of wearing a uniform that's visibly different than your enemy? What's one of the advantages? Well, one of the advantages is that A, you're not going to get hit by friendly fires likely, but B, you're demonstrating your allegiance to your side. You're telling the enemy, you're telling the world, you're telling those with you, this is where I stand by virtue of what I put on today. By virtue of how I appear to the world, it demonstrates my allegiance. It demonstrates to who and to what I bend the knee, just by virtue of what I am wearing as I go out the doors. In verse 11, Peter is saying something similar. He's saying that if you're a sojourner, if you're on Team Jesus, so to speak, if you're an alien, if you're a pilgrim, if you're a Christian, if you're an ambassador, then one of the ways that you demonstrate The faith that you have is that you live differently. You visibly put on different spiritual clothing, so to speak. I live differently than others. I live differently than the enemies of Christ. And because I live differently than them, I stand out on the spiritual battlefield. And that's not only okay, that's desirable. One of the ways we do that is when we abstain from what the world dives headlong into. One of the ways you demonstrate who your king is is when you reject the world's mandates, and you say, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm going to do what's right, and you yield to King Jesus in a visible way. When you abstain from fleshly lusts, and there's a whole category of things that can be called fleshly lusts. When you abstain from those things, and rather make it your purpose in life to be conformed to the image of Christ, so that when people see you, they see Him. When you do that, You won't have to wonder whether you're seen as an alien or a pilgrim or a stranger or a sojourner. You will be. But it takes some intentionality, which is why Peter says it here. This isn't by osmosis that this suddenly develops. It takes intentionality. It says for you and I that we have to make some concrete decisions on the appetites and the attitudes and the affections that we pursue because the world is watching. You know, there was a number of years back there was an NFL quarterback and he made waves. I don't know why this would make waves, but he made waves by declaring to the world that he and his fiance would remain celibate, would not engage in premarital relations until such time as they were married. Man alive, the amount of critique and, and just flat-out mockery that this individual got from the world. Rather than seeing it as, you know, maybe in decades or centuries past, we would have seen that as a good and appropriate thing, modern-day culture says, you, you prude, you fundamentalist, They don't know what they mean when they use it, but it's the word they call us. You fundamentalist. You fundamentalist Christian. When I say I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that, it has the effect of saying that that is wrong. And guess what? That's okay. That's part of what being a good Christian witness is. You say, I am going to be Christ-like regardless of the cost, and if that means that that which I'm rejecting is seen for the sin that it is, then so be it. That's the objective. We're going to see that as we move into verse 12. That's the objective. As we do these things, it's not only right because it's right, but God uses the things we do in a visible way to bear witness to a fallen world, that they might be less fallen in the day of his visitation. You have the capacity to teach others through your actions and choices in ways that you may not be taking full advantage of as you're busy trying to blend in, as we all are busy trying to blend in. But Christ calls us to something more. And says that when we act in the way that we're called to act, when we live in the way we're called to live, we bring glory to God and we teach those who are watching, because they are watching. Look at verse 12, and we'll see how he expands on that. Verse 12, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, prudes and fundamentalists and the like, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of his visitation. I'm going to explain verse 12, but let me read verses 11 and 12 together. It's it's short. Let's get the full punch. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from the flesh of the which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of his visitation. The world is watching. If you were to take all that down and give the cliff notes, you know, bullet point version of what he just said, he said, the world is watching. They're watching you. They're watching to see whether your faith holds water. Does it? Even if they reject you, even if they hate you, they're still watching you. You get that? And because it's true, you have the ability to teach. Even if they reject you, even if they hate you, they're watching you. And they still have, through the action of watching you, the capacity to learn from you. That ultimately, they might glorify God in the day of his visitation. The world watches when an athlete is interviewed and it says, God be the glory after a big win. It may be a trivial thing in the long run, but they gave God glory even through that trivial thing. The world is watching when a college student goes out into that wood chipper of an institution that exists for the souls of young people, or at least as it can be. The world's watching when a college student says, I will not yield to the pressures I find myself beset by. I will make moral choices. I will do that which is right in the face of all the opportunities to do that which is wrong. The world watches when lawyers uphold the law. The world watches when a mechanic says, I'm going to do my job right to the glory of God, and I'll stand upon His word as I do it. The world watches when a small child has the faith of a mustard seed, and then as that small child grows, they watch as that faith grows, as a young soul goes out and the light grows brighter and brighter, Christian witness in the world around them. The world watches this. The world watches pilgrims in their pilgrimage. The world watches and you know what's cool, what's exciting about that? As the world watches these pilgrims, they're forced to wonder about, they're forced to consider the pilgrim's destination. When you're watching someone travel, you're not simply interested in their travels, you're interested in their destination too. The faithful obedience of men and women across the century has instructed and taught many who are watching in the fallen world around them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happened to them? Nebuchadnezzar says, all right. The sound of the flute and the lyre and the horn and the trumpet and the kazoo and all these different things, y'all fall down and you worship that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood the stakes because if they didn't worship that, they would die. And they would die in a pretty horrific way. They'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet, and yet, they stood on God's promises. They stood on God's word and they said, even if we're thrown into the furnace and even if we die, we're not going to bow down to that. We're going to do what's right in our generation, even in the face of everyone else doing what's wrong. Well, guess what? Two things. Number one, God preserved them. Their story ends well. Number two, everyone in Babylon was watching them. Remember the king and his advisors? They were furious. The advisors came to the king. They spoke against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they said, These men are nonconformists. They don't do what everyone's supposed to do. Right? They're evildoers nonconformists. The king was as furious as he had ever gotten. In fact, he was so furious, he says, turn the furnace up seven times hotter than it's usually turned up. It was so hot, it killed the men who were supposed to carry and throw them in there. That was the nature of heat brought against their door, and even though it was brought against their door, they would not yield to it. And because they did not yield to it, they taught the people who were watching. People are watching pilgrims on their pilgrimage, and it compels them to think about the destination. People learn something from observing the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's true in a lot of other cases throughout Scripture as well. If you think of David, he goes out as this little scrappy little kid with no armor and a slingshot to face Goliath, the monster of all monsters. Now, of course, we know Israel learned a lot that day, and ultimately David became their king. Well, guess what? The Philistines also learned. They also learned something about the faith of the Israelites and the faith of this young man. People are watching when you do what's right. Right? even though the consequences may be dire. People were watching Christians as they marched into the Colosseum to their death at the hands of Nero. And even as they died, those who were watching knew that they could have spared their lives if they had recanted. But they didn't. And even though they died, their testimony lives on. People are watching. They're watching you too. They're watching to see how you face sometimes little things and sometimes big things. They're watching to see how you face life and death. They're watching to see how you face cancer diagnosis. They're watching to see how you face all manner of hardships. And you have the capacity as you face those things, if you do so through faith, to shine a light that may draw them in time, in the day of his resuscitation, to your Savior as well. This is one of the benefits of hardship, as it instructs the people around us as we're undergoing it, as we're facing it. In your own life, God has undoubtedly put you in a situation where there are people who are watching you, and many of which are not believers, many of which are not Christians. This may be family members, it may be coworkers. it may be people down the street. And again, it's a good thing for you to have the unique opportunity, the unique privilege of being one of the people that they're watching because that means you're one of the people that they might learn from in order that they might glorify God on the day of his visitation. You know what, that's just the way God likes it. God likes to do this. He likes to validate the work that's going on in churches and pulpits and the like. He likes to validate that, but he also likes to validate when we, as sheep, go out into the sheepfold, go out into the harvest, go out into the mission field, and act in ways that draw others towards our shepherd. God loves to validate his work in saving and sanctifying one man by presenting him before the eyes of another man as a witness, as a testimony to the truth. Someone wiser than me said, You and I are walking billboards. Sounds like a burden. It's not. It's a privilege and opportunity. All right, with our remaining time this morning, let me return to the phrase that's the title of the sermon The War Against the Soul. Let me return to that. In the early stages of World War I, there was a soldier who was brand new to the trenches, just brand new, and and he didn't recognize the sounds of danger and warfare. I mean, he understood what an explosion was, but he didn't necessarily, the first time he heard it, know what an air raid signal was. He'd never heard machine gun fire before. He knew it was dangerous, but he didn't know exactly why or what direction or how to identify how far away it was. He didn't understand those things intuitively. He didn't know how to navigate a minefield. He'd never even seen a mine. There was so much that even he, as a commissioned individual going out into battle, that he didn't understand about the battlefield in which he had been placed. All he knew is this, that the enemy wants to kill me. All he knew is that the enemy wanted to take him out, but he was naive about what that meant. What I just said there really, really could apply to all of us. You and I are on a spiritual battlefield. The enemy wants to kill us, and yet we are naive about what that means about the nature of his weaponry. And we tend to think we're Johnny with a fiddle. We're not. Peter, again, when he talks about the war against the soul, he doesn't use that word as just hyperbole. He says there's a battle going on for your hearts and minds, and if you're a parent, for your children's hearts and minds. And the enemy won't play fair. He hasn't played fair with you. If you're older in life, you know the enemy didn't play fair with me. There was things that came to my door. There's things that came about me. There's just experiences I've had through life. The enemy did not play fair. If he didn't play fair with you, he will not play fair with your children. He will bring all sorts of instruments and tools and weapons against you. There's a war going on against your soul. And you know what the saddest part about it is? So often we, we are complicit in the very battle that the devil is waging against us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about it. If you look back at your own life, if you think you're back, all the spiritual scars that have been laid upon it, how many of them have been self-inflicted? There's a war against your soul, and there isn't a spiritual enemy that desires to harm you. But the cruel irony is that many of the greatest scars, many of the greatest hurts that we've engendered have been self-inflicted. And so what Peter's saying is, says, look, there's a war going against you. You know that there's an enemy out there, and you won't understand every direction that he might come against you, but there's this much you can do. You can abstain from that which you know is wrong and is harming you and has had a record of harming you over all your life. There are fleshly lusts that war against our soul. They don't necessarily have to come from some enemy. Some demonic thing out there that's casting arrows at you and I. There are fleshly lusts that emanate from within here. You know, there was a pastor who once, a lot like Johnny with a fiddle, who thought, you know, I got the moxie. I got what it takes to stand up against you know, all the things of this world and the devil that's within it. Well, I heard another seasoned pastor admonish the younger pastor, and he said this. He says, man, you can't even stand against the sin in your own flesh. You think you can stand against the devil? It's true of us. The sin in our own flesh does a number on us. And you know it. So what's the answer? The answer is this. To abstain from that which is harming you. To say, I will put at arm's length the very things that are causing harm to my spirit, my soul, and my testimony. Because I may be doing things that whether they're known or not known are casting a pall. On my witness. Peter says, abstain. Abstain from that which is warring against your soul. This week, try it out. Identify some area in your life that you need to abstain from something that otherwise historically you have given into. Abstain from fleshly lust warring against your soul. And as you do so, as you walk away, as you turn from, as you repent from, that which is sinful, and as you turn to that which is good, that which is righteous, as you turn to Christ Himself, you will find that you're on a pilgrimage, a good one. You're walking away from that which is bad, you're walking towards that which is good, and the world is watching you as you do so. This week, consider the destination, consider the steps that you're undertaking to get there, and consider those, those who are watching you as you do so day by day. Let's pray. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.